my friends. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. I am Jeff Openshaw, the host with the most. Is that a Beetlejuice reference? A host? I don't know which one it is. But anyway, I'm happy to be here. Thankful to all of you for joining us this week. I hope for our American listeners, you had a terrific Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, and uh, if you've never supported us on Patreon before, now is your time. If you listen to this show, say, oh my gosh, oh, this is the greatest, greatest 50 odd minutes I've spent like in my week. I must support them. You should go to patreon.com slash this week in Mormons and pledge like three bucks a month. If you do that, it'll be very cool. We are doing our, our Christmas drive though, which I ask you to increase your pledge to $87 a month, precisely that much. And if you do that, I will be able to get a Pixel 6. So life goals. But seriously, thanks for your support, folks. And please join us on social media and all those great places. And uh, Write us a review wherever you get your podcasts and visit us at thisweekinmormons.com. I've done all the plugging. Thrilled to be joined this week by former Virginian, now Idahoan, Jared Gillins. Hello. Hello. I don't like the way you said that with sort of disappointment I need to stop. Dis- I need to stop dissing the Mormon corridor, right? Like I need to just be excited. Like you are in Idaho living your best life. There is an Arctic circle in your neighborhood. Uh, yeah, it's about a mile and a half from my front door. Right. Yeah, I can get to an Arctic Circle. I actually haven't been there yet. Do you still do I'm your run? Big, do you do still do? I didn't grow up with Arctic Circle. I, I, I grew up with Dairy Queen. So is Arctic Circle like only in Utah? I don't. Like you're in Idaho, but like are they only yeah. in Wasatchia? I, I don't know. Like I like I said, I, I it, where I was in Western Washington, I was not familiar with them, but I don't I don't know what their distribution is like. We're going to find out here. Arctic Circle Restaurants. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. It's an American chain of burger and shake restaurants based in Midvale, Utah. There's 62 restaurants. 50% of the restaurants are in Utah. They once had franchises in California, but no more. Hmm. So there we go. How was your Thanksgiving, man? It was good. Um, we had we kept it pretty small. Most of Kelsey's family went out of town and went to had dinner with other people. But her aunt that we had lived with for a while uh, when mm-hmm. we first moved here, she st- stuck around in town. So we invited her over and we had a nice dinner with Jan and ate. My, my turkey dried out a little bit, I'm sad to say, but it still tasted good. The Did stuffing brine was it? good, Did which is the most it? important thing. What's that? Did you brine the turkey or cook it in a I bag? I did a dry brine, but I, I think the problem was that I used too coarse a grain of salt mm. uh, that it didn't, it, it just, uh, it, so the idea of a dry brine is that, right, the salt sits on the surface of the turkey and draws the, the, the moisture out, but then dissolves in that moisture and then it gets sucked back in to the turkey. It's sort of, you're, you're doing a, like a, a double osmosis sort of thing. Uh, and I think what happened was I used two coarse of a grain of, mm. of sea salt. And so it drew the water out, but it was so coarse that it didn't dissolve into that liquid. And so then all that liquid just drained into the, the pan that the turkey was sitting in. So, so yeah, I think it's probably you my said, fault. You had gravy at least then. That's what you're <laughs> No, because I, the way I make stuffing, I, I, I break oh the turkey God. all apart and then I pile it on top of the stuffing. So all the juices go into the stuffing. Oh my. Because for a Gillen's turkey is but a vehicle for making good stuffing. Okay. Uh, so, but I, but I did make a good stock out of other things. And then I, uh, when I sliced the turkey, there was a little bit of juice runoff, and I put that as well into the the gravy. So the gravy did turn out very well. It just it was an alternative method. Anyway, I, now you know all. I didn't about. know. I didn't know that for a Gillens, the stuffing was very cru- was crucial. That's uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, like Thanksgiving is all about the stuffing and the turkey. You want the turkey to be good, but mostly because if you have a good turkey, if you do the turkey well, then the stuffing will turn out well as well. 
I grew up primarily, I'm assuming it was just like a stovetop type situation with stuffing. Mm. And while I've had homemade stuffing either on its own or stuffed in the turkey since then, which is delicious and wonderful, my expectations, I think, have always just been sort of moderated because I'm just like, whatever, if someone makes stovetop, I'm good with it. I don't care. I have, I have no other feelings. Jeff, it. I hope that someday I have the pleasure of inviting you to my house for Thanksgiving and that you'll be able to accept so that you can taste. I, I want what to I, taste your I stuffing. I mean, not so badly. humbly, we'll say is excellent stuffing like i it's just i it's, need this stuffing so in my life yeah i only make it once a year too i mean so it's a big treat for me i love it it's like one of my favorite things to eat uh but you know i only make it on thanksgiving because it is a lot of work and also it's terrible for you it's bread soaked in fat mostly so i, you know. I don't see the problem with this yet but okay <laughs> i'm just saying i'm getting to a point where i have to start worrying about my cholesterol levels and yeah, my don't you heart hate health. being in our forties? There's like stuff that matters now. It's yeah, funny. no, my cholesterol is actually a little high, so gotta gotta work on that. I need to okay. go get a doctor. I have no idea if there's anything wrong with this. This is really depressing, Jeff. I wanted to ask you a, diff- a totally different question. All- I, I had my own ideas about how this cold open would go, and <laughs> but we talked about Thanksgiving, which is good. I was curious because not so Thanksgiving not only means good dinner, and I hope you had one too. Sorry, I hope we I didn't uh, cut you off for talking. Oh, about your, your well, I mean, if you mine was great. We went down to Charlottesville, saw some family. Oh, nice. Gr- my wife and I actually got to go on a date for the first time in like three years. So that was good. We haven't really Very been nice. doing, haven't been doing sitters really during the uh, COVID situation. That's our preference. Yeah, so understandable. Uh, um, so you had family, been, you had family to help out. We had some family to help out. So we got to take off, got, went to a cool taco shop by, by like an art field thing. And we, uh, this was in Charlottesville. In Charlottesville. Yeah. They've got some That's art a cool stuff. city too. I like it. Yeah. I was going to go to a vinyl record shop on the downtown mall that was supposed to be open, but it was closed. But then we went over to, uh, UVA to the Fraylin Museum, which is their art museum at UVA, which was fun. And walked around the lawn in the rotunda and stuff, got some cookies, had a grand time. It was great. Thanksgiving uh, itself. We spent more time there than usual. Usually we just do quick overnight trips. We spent like three days down there. It was great. We had a lot of fun. How did the UVA art museum hold up to the MOA at BYU? I would actually say the MOA is more impressive. MOA is big. If you don't, you, uh, it's a you good take, art museum. It's surprisingly it, good for a university art museum. You take it for granted going there and realizing it's a large museum that can handle some serious installations. Freyland was in like an older building given the age of a lot of UVA's buildings. Um, definitely more modest. It was basically just a couple of wings when you first walk in and then there's a, a touring kind of, you know, revolving exhibit on the upper floor and that's about it. So hmm. MOA at BYU, my wife and I, we commented on it to each other. We were like, man, you really forget how big BYU's art museum is compared to a lot of other schools. They do good things there. It's yeah, a, the most great. Most it's fantastic. an unsung hero, I think, of the university and people don't always take the time to just walk up the quad and and duck in there if you get a chance because there's great exhibits. Yeah, I really didn't visit it very much like my first couple of years at BYU. I didn't really discover it until probably my junior year and then I was there all the time because I was like, this place is fantastic. I should have been here all, the, you know, I should have been spending a lot more time here. Now I'm trying to see which exhibitions they have right now. Not that I'm going to Provo anytime soon. Oh, passion for French posters. Everyone loves French posters. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to see that? So it was great. Great Thanksgiving. Happy time. My cousin lives down there too. We had a good time seeing family. A nice little trip. Except I just feel like I needed a break by the time it was Sunday and like I got home Saturday night and then it was back to Bishopric meeting at 7 a.m. and like stuff. And oh, I man. Was, yeah, we, we have uh, we have 6 a.m. Bishopric meeting in my ward. <clears throat> I think it's actually a sin. When did you join the fine ranks of the Bishopric, Jared? I'm the ward clerk, so I... Got a boy! Yeah, it's, you also, know it's also fun. So we're, but we're moving to 10 a.m. church in the new year, so we'll have... 7.30 a.m. Bishopric meeting, which is 
much more like you know it's still early but i don't mind i don't mind 7 30 that's still pretty early if you have 10 a.m church to do 7 30 bishopric that's still well because the way our bishop prefers to do it is to do have a bishopric meeting and then have ward council or uh byc do you do do an hour for church an hour for each one oh and and we do an hour for each one so we do half an hour of bishopric and then an hour of ward council you know, we probably could get away with half an hour of bishopric. I mean, there's some days, you know, where you just have some more needs and that you that would be hard to get it all in. But for the most part, I think we could contain it in half an hour. But when you I'm were not in, in charge, and I really don't want to be in charge. So, yeah. When you were a, a counselor in the bishopric in your old ward here in the DC area, um, were you doing that when it was the 8 a.m. church block and you had crazy early meetings? Yes, but I, my bishop was, uh, Bishop Gordon was um, a little more kind in that we. We broke it up so that Bishop was before church and then Ward Council was after. Oh, that's nice. And also, we didn't do Ward Council every week. Like the way the the handbook is written and the, and the council that we got from the stake was have it as often as you need. So we were doing Ward Council like every other week. That's what we uh, do. It's yeah. Every other week. And then we no, do a longer In, in this ward that I'm in now, we do it every week. We, well, we do it three or four weeks of the month if there's a, if there's a fifth Sunday, but, uh, and then just one of the weeks we, we don't have ward council cause they do BYC in that place instead. I, but like, I would, yeah. I would really love to go to an every other week ward council schedule and put it. I will never after forget church. though. I will never forget being in that ward and going to like five thirty AM PEC, which Oof. was just insane. Yeah. It was nuts that we had to do it that early. I mean, that's what we did. So we do PEC for an hour. Then we do ward council for an hour. And then it oh, because be you were in PC because you were the elder court president. Yeah, back when we were still the PC. So that right. was that was that was a fun stretch getting up that early every Sunday and heading mm. up to the uh, in the dark, just showing up in the darkness. In the no, moment. getting rid of PD, PC, I think, was a good move. How do we feel about the high priest group integration with elders quorum? Though has it been a success? I don't I know. I, I like it. I like that. Um, I don't feel it because I mean it's technically not. You're a high priest, but your peer group is still elders. That's exactly. Why. So and well, yeah. that's the thing. It's it, you know the high priest elders quorum division. It technically isn't an age thing, but in practical, it winds up how it hit how it works. It is, and so even even forgetting that I'm a high priest and I would be stuck with the old guys. Um, I still just think there's value in all of us meeting together. Like why, why would I not want to like our elders quorum president right now in my ward is like this just really genuinely good man. And he, by his age, I don't even, I don't know if he's ordained a high priest, but by his age, he would be like in the high priest group if we still had that. And I, I feel like it would be a loss for me to not be able to associate in quorum meetings with brother Dooley because he's like, he's just a fantastic person. So it's like, why split us up? Just keep us all together, you know? Was there an official like graduation age at some point when they'd make you a high priest? Even if you don't, don't think calling, were... I think that's what happened with my dad. My dad was like never in a presidency or any role like that. And at some point they just ordained him a high priest. He had no calling that required it. They just, yeah, I've, I've heard of that happening just because they're like, hey, he's like 65 or whatever now. And I mean, I don't think there was ever an official age. Other, I also heard of just sometimes they'd just be like, yeah, he's still ordained an elder, but. He's on the older side. His peers are in the high priest group. And they would just invite an elder yeah, who was like over too. 50, whatever, or 60, whatever, just to attend high priest group just so that he'd be with his peers. So which, again, I think that's a, a good thing that comes out of uh, integration is that we don't have to like divide along peer lines that, you know, first of all, if you want to hang out with the, the old guys or the young guys, we're all in the same room. But also if you don't, if you want to just hang out with the people you admire, the people you want to lean over and make a comment to during the lesson or whatever, it's, you know, it doesn't matter how old they are, what quorum they belong in. So yeah, I think it's Fair good. Enough. 
before we get to the news, uh, way back minutes ago, you said this wasn't how the cold open you were expecting. I just I feel like that's that's, that's no, sitting I, in you and you need it. So no, what, it's okay. What, we can do this really quickly. I'm just super curious because, you know, we were talking about Thanksgiving, and for many people, I mean, and, and it's, again, this is not an official thing by any means, but for many people, Thanksgiving is that marking point in which at which people start to listen to Christmas music. Sure, and I've been listening to a lot just because I don't know. It's like like it's been a couple of, a couple of heavy years for for the world at large and for me as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I Kelsey was like, and you know, she's in charge of putting together our our ward uh, sacrament meeting program. And so she was like, this was a, several days before Thanksgiving. She was listening to samples and trying to pick some music, and she played this really pretty version of like Oh Holy Night. And I just started like crying. <laughs> I was like, man, maybe I need some Christmas music in my life. So I've been listening to it for a few weeks now. But my point is, I wanted to ask you. Because I know you're a guy who likes music, and I am as well. Uh, what is what is your like your Christmas music of choice? Like, if you could like pick, I don't know, give me your top three Christmas albums. Because I'm just really curious, and I think maybe oh, our, our listeners albums. will be. That's if it's actual albums, that's a tough one. And I've I've fallen victim, even though I'm an album guy like uh-huh. by trade. Yeah, I have. When it comes to things like Christmas holiday music, I've fallen victim to you know playlisting. I would say a lot more. I do that too, but I still like. I grew up like listening album by album usually and like because you know i I grew up on cassette tapes uh, so i mean there's classics i've I've probably got some on the vinyl records behind me that are some good ones i mean nat king cole's christmas album oh yeah all-timer for sure uh it's over before you know it i don't know if edie gourmet ever did a christmas album i should look into that edie gourmet is wonderful if none of you have listened to edie gourmet she is or was but yeah she's she's terrific um one of my favorite Christmas albums, and I might say I like it perhaps even more than any of the Tabernacle Choirs Christmas albums, is the one by the Millennial Choirs and Orchestras, the former MCO, the former Mormon Choral Organizations. Yeah, they have a they have a Christmas album that is pretty lights out, awesome, really well done. It's one of interesting. My I'll have to check that out. Kelsey's um, one of Kelsey's uncles is in that choir. Yeah, the the, the version of Silent Night they recorded is just is phenomenal. I absolutely love it. And Silent Night, you know, it is kind of the. Uh, it's like the the showstopper, the classic one you finish with all the time. But it's, I unapologetically love it. It's, it is my favorite. I mean, it, this is a, so cliche, but it is my hands down my favorite Christmas song. So. It's a wonderful song, and I, and it speaks to the fact that great songs can be the most simple in nature. Silent Night largely follows a three chord uh, structure. Well, you know the story, right? Doesn't do well. The night it was very quiet, and then Jesus was born. Not that story. The story of how it was written. Somebody was playing, <laughs> messing around with one four one five one four one five, and came so up it's with it's a German, words. it's a German in origin, still in Knox, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I can't remember the year, but you know, so there was this um, parish priest or whatever you call him in, in Germany, and their organ was broken, and so he, but he, so they couldn't have like their traditional Christmas Eve music, everything, because they could, didn't have the accompaniment that they normally would. But he had written a poem. His name was Franz Gruber. And he had written a poem and he thought, well, this could be a good Christmas song. Uh, and he found, I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the music, but it was a friend of his who was there locally and he was a guitarist. And he says, would you write a guitar setting for this? Uh, because it is, you know, because our organ's broken and I still want to have like some good music for Christmas. So it was, it was written out of necessity. And I think that's probably partly why um, it's such a simple chord structure because it was just sort of like let's throw let's set this poem that the priest wrote or the pastor wrote to music and just do it as quickly as possible and do it simply enough that we can play it and people can learn it and sing along so like it's got a very humble origins of just like 
let's 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 get some Christmas for this German congregation. And then it just like exploded because it was such a beautiful and wonderful song. It's a beautiful song. It's wonderful. And it's funny you mentioned, uh, you know, because Franz Gruber wrote it, which makes me think of Hans Gruber, the villain in Die Hard. Yeah. And as you said this, I looked it up and there's actually been theories between fans for years whether, whether or not they pulled the name Franz Gruber to make Hans Gruber the terrorist. Because technically... Die Hard is a Christmas movie. That's right? what they say. Yeah. That's what they say. Um, um, so anyways, yeah. Um, that's a, Those are some great ones. I guess I don't have a lot of other ones exactly popping in my head. I'd have to kind of look at my catalog and think about what some of my other favorite full-blown Christmas albums are, if I'm getting into it. Uh, a big fan of the She and Him catalog in general. Great Christmas mm. music there. I, I like that balance of newish but traditional i'm not as into the full-blown christmas pop stuff some songs some songs are good oh kelly clarkson's hers could be an all-timer do not love the britney spears one though santa can you hear i hate that song so yeah. much yeah i so can much. hear that yeah i can see that well yeah. we digress let's get to uh jeff you didn't ask my my favorite albums oh i'm sorry what's your favorite album <laughs> sorry we'll, i'll just throw them out real quickly i love the Sufjan Stevens, the, he's done two Christmas oh, albums. How did I forget the Sufjan Stevens one? I don't know, Sorry. But, but his Sorry. first Christmas collection, Songs for Christmas, better than I the second. It. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I like the second one too, but that's where it, it, it ventures more into like the weird side of Sufjan Stevens, which is great, but like less. I can't believe I forgot that one. Holiday I feel like cheery. I listen to that yeah. like in its entirety every Christmas. Repeat. Oh yeah, me too, and multiple times. Uh, so yeah, Sufjan Stevens, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. That that sure. that Vince Guaraldi trio, I, I do think, is just really good. It's my favorite, hands down, my favorite version of O Tenenbaum is the Vince Guaraldi one from Charlie Brown. So good. And then this year, I, I'm feeling like my if I had to choose three, my other my third would be uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. If you're familiar, they have a Christmas album called It's a Holiday Soul Party, and it's so good, it's so very good. I highly recommend our listeners check that out okay now we can go forward are you and sure I, yes i appreciate that though i appreciate you uh so we're gonna lead off this week terrible things have happened in south south of downtown la no it's not the usual stuff you're thinking about you know violence and stuff like that no no down there at usc the uh the byu of course played the usc trojans in football and i have many rabid byu fans in my feeds who thought that this was the second coming of football because to beat the Trojans is really important. Um, BYU's had a good year. This was their last regular season game, I, as far as I'm aware. They've had a very good year, and I'm sure many will be hemming and hawing, saying they're not given enough credit by the sports press and blah, blah, blah. But that is not this point. What is happening here um, <laughs> is there was an offensive chant during the game where, and BYU, US, sorry, USC Athletics issued an apology. And former Cougar Vic Soto is a USC assistant coach uh, and also apologized for the inappropriate behavior by USC fans who were chanting F the Mormons from the stands so audibly and clearly enough that you could hear it like from the broadcast of the game. If but you're they didn't say the F, right, Jeff? They did not say F. They said that. They also said Mormons, not Latter-day Saints. So I feel like that, which one's more offensive? Which, well, which I mean, one? which one is actually like a responsible journalist of these people? Like who they're using the wrong term. <laughs> Didn't they look up the style guide before? Really? They that's very, came up that's with very their upsetting. Or, or is it instead speak to the other way of it that in situations like this, no one can be bothered with the long hand of explaining who we are. <laughs> it's so much easier. to throw. Or it illustrates the fact that Mormons is used as a pejorative. You know, it could be any of these. But well, and you could also use it from our perspective just to be like, 
to just to choose not to be offended. Like, oh, clearly they're not talking about us. They're not talking. About we me. don't identify as Mormons, so they're talking about some other group. This is like Bickertonites or something. Yeah, we, <laughs> oh, no. nothing. Um, so this happened. There's not much more to it. They've apologized. I mean, USC Trojans, their athletics tweeted out uh, their apologies for the offensive chant from their student section. Of course, this made the Deseret News, and I imagine many a Cougar fan is kind of relishing in the worldliness of the large private university in Los Angeles. Uh, do one private university to another, you know? And One uh, funny thing is, you know, when I was reading this article, you know, they kept on, you know, mentioning this offensive chant, but I was just like, this article never... doesn't tell us what the chant was. And then I was like, oh, it's Deseret News. It must have been bad enough that they just didn't feel yeah. like they could even refer to it. So I had to like do some digging to see to find out exactly what they were saying. But the Deseret News, they didn't even want to like give readers the, the opportunity to imagine what the chant would be. There, were, there was zero reference to any of the words of the chant. So he's yeah. here. He's there. He's every bleeping where. <laughs> Ro- <sorry. laughs> Cosmo, Cosmo. No. Um, let's yeah, take, so, that, so that happened. Yeah. That happened. That it did happen. So this is not really thematically related. It's funny how we always feel like we have to have like a good segue. But let's no, let's stay in Provo, Jeff. Let's stay in mm. Provo and look uh, a little bit past a little a little uh, east of campus, a little northeast of campus to the temple. And we actually, so I believe it was last general conference they announced uh, the, that that the Provo Temple would be rebuilt. But in the last week, we actually got images of what the redesign will look like. And there was some speculation when he said rebuild the Provo Temple, people were like, does that mean like completely rebuild like Ogden style? It turns out that it does. Uh, So many of our listeners have probably probably already seen this, but yeah, it is completely different. And it's funny. I think the last time I was on this show, oh, I was, we, we talked about how I toured the the Pocatello temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but and, and I think we kind of tongue in cheek said, "Well, you know, temples are just a series of boxes when you when you when you take the spire off of it." And they really stuck with that. It's like they heard what we said and said, <laughs> "You know what? It is a series of boxes," and that's what they did for the Provo Temple. Uh, not to say that it's not beautiful in its own right, but it is. I, I guess some, if you could call it a criticism or a critique of the new design that some people have mentioned online is that. It's a bit bland. It looks it looks it's a bit generic. It looks a lot like kind of other temples. Like there's nothing distinctive and and it's fu- and it's funny because looking at the old design how it currently looks, it's extremely distinctive, especially since Ogden has been rebuilt. Like there's no other temple like this in the world. And now they're going from this birthday cake or pillar by night, cloud by day or whatever you want to call it design. And they're going to like a series of boxes. So, I mean, you know, and that's be- I, obviously that's way beyond the point. The point of a temple is to have a place where you can feel like you're communing with heaven, where you feel like you're closer to the Lord. And it'll still be that. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there's been a lot of speculation about why some people are like, are they, is the church embarrassed by the aesthetics? Like, And really what it seems to be about, especially from stuff that I've read from people commenting uh, on our on your Facebook post, is that it seems to really be about seismic safety. Like it's right sitting on a fault line. It's, it's almost up on the bench there of, uh, you know, the Wasatch Front. That's, in, and that's where the, fault, the, fault, the Wasatch Fault runs exactly where the lower lands hit the mountains. So the temple right. is basically sitting right on top of it. Right. And it's just not, you know, built to withstand a major earthquake. Um, 
one, uh, one, yeah. one commenter on the Facebook post said it would literally pancake, like the levels would all just fall on top of each other yeah. and anybody inside would be completely crushed. So it likely is uh, a project that's taking into account the need for better safety and better preparedness for just, you know, it, when you live on a fault line, you, you, you prepare for earthquakes, but, um, but you know, the, but it's, but the, the other, the other side of that is it's losing a lot of distinctiveness and I don't know. Some people are sad about that. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, I bet I'm going to throw the listeners a curveball here and tell them, and they're not going to expect me to say this, but I'm not happy about this, you know, um, go figure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally, I, I don't think the Provo Temple is the most elegant building, but I appreciate that it's kind of a mid-century, it's just a very much a mid-century blast of in some ways bizarre design in a way i know we've like you said you know is it the birthday cake the pillar of fire the cloud whatever a lot of symbolism in it that's kind of changed over the years since they painted the spire white and they added the moroni on it only in 2003 for example and, and but did you still, notice in the new design there will be no moroni so it's like of course of course like of course. 20 years ago they said we have to have a moroni or 15 years oh, whatever no. it was and now it's like we have to not have a moroni you know so yeah. whatever um but it is, it's just so distinctive. And I think it always worked better for the space. Yes, it and Ogden were stable mates. Ogden was dedicated first, but Ogden just kind of sits in downtown Ogden. Redoing it in Ogden also made a lot of sense to help kind of stimulate the area. Sort of, yeah, they were renovating the downtown a lot in that in that time. And, and since it, then, like downtown Ogden's become like a really cool, awesome, yeah. renovated place. And the, but- church has, and the church has played a role in that, just as we played a role with doing City Creek and helping downtown Salt Lake, just as they've done with the Mesa, Arizona Temple and right. changing the grounds there and helping to do a mixed-use development, hopefully plus up the area. If you've ever been to Mesa before that, I mean, there's some pretty shady streets like immediately around the temple, as you well know, Jared, from your time in Arizona. Um, <laughs> Mesa was so outside of my mission. So The difference in Provo, though, is the Provo Temple sits... On a nice little incline right above the MTC, right next to BYU, in a mostly just kind of Tony neighborhood, uh, close to the entrance to Rock Creek. It's in a very pleasant area, nice backdrop. Like it's situated very nicely. There's nothing you're going to do here in terms of gentrification that this will benefit from in any way. And as you said, yeah, I, I agree with others. I don't know a ton about it, but from what I've read, it, it appears to be since the temple sits on a fault, it did have a seismic retrofitting a few years ago, but many still argue that's just enough for the foundational work. It's not enough to really keep the temple safe in that time. I do wish the church would just say that if that's the case. I mean, President Nelson, all we know is still when President Nelson said, and we're going to rebuild the Provo Temple. And at the time he said rebuild, like we don't know if that literally meant strip it down to its studs and like rebuild the temple or yeah. if it meant to actually like raise the temple and build a new temple that's still called the Provo temple, which appears to be what's going to happen. So, right. And the design is fine. Like you said, it's boxes. It looks a lot like the Orem temple just with some swapped color palettes and a couple of features, but it right. looks like it's essentially the Orem temple. I, I bet you there'll be some more distinctiveness on the inside. Like every temple is its own thing. Even yeah, when it's, sure. Even when it appears to be built according to a template. Like, so, you know, I mean, and then again, I, I don't want to be, heard as complaining but but on the other hand i'd never i never would have complained at all like you said the old design the current design was weird and was quirky but you know i i I, like many people attended uh the mtc in provo when i was preparing to be a missionary i was in there for eight weeks because i was learning spanish and then i attended byu afterwards and like i i had a lot of great sacred experiences in that temple and i never at any point when I was walking in or leaving the temple, thought, "Ooh, look at this ugly thing!" It was just like I'm going to the temple, right? And, and so, and I guess I mean I, I'll apply that same uh, mindset 
to the new design. It's like, who cares if it's kind of boxy and kind of generic? Like, it's the temple. It's like, it's a sacred space where coming and going, it'll be, you know, a, a good a good experience no matter what it looks like on the outside. So, so. here's one thing I am curious about because a lot of people commented and said, oh, this will be great. Like, we can build it so it can have better capacity, things like that. I don't think that's, yeah. But that is, Provo's design is relative, it's, um, it's uncommon in the church, you know. It follows the the circular design with six ordinance rooms, a central celestial room, which is right. very efficient in terms of doing endowment sessions. Jordan River does it, DC does it, um, and it doesn't look like a huge temple, but it is a large temple. It's like yeah, so it's in the top ten it's, as far it's as the, the fifth size. largest temple yeah. in the church. Yeah, it's, there you go. it's so I don't see how they'd improve upon that. What is interesting is the rebuilt Ogden Temple, which is still very large. The rebuilt Ogden Temple is still one hundred twelve thousand square feet. And it does say it has six instruction rooms. Okay. Now, I don't know if that means, I don't know what that means. If they have, Does that mean it's, I haven't been to the Ogden Temple. I'd love people to tell me. I don't think it's built in the, the round sort of way because I think we've moved away from that because we like building our celestial rooms so they have windows on at least one side. We like the natural light in celestial rooms. I think, you know, we've gotten away from the whole. You could do the skylight thing or, you know. The, you, you could do that. Or, like that's or what a cupola do. type thing where it comes in. From the sides. Well, they do they do that in Madrid, for example. Yeah, the temples in the the sister rooms in the center, but there's there's windows that are higher up that get some light in there. They could do that. I think I've that's never how been to the Preston Temple is as well. Yeah, in England, anyway. No, I think Preston's just got the celestial room in the back because it follows the the longer. Maybe spire. I'm thinking of London. One of those had like higher up like type windows. Yeah, I, I can't remember. So I don't know, but it does say they have six in Ogden. I don't think Ogden would do the the ordinance rooms in the round thing. But the question is like, would they do that in Provo? Would they just do the same thing? Will the Pro- this Provo temple based on the design doesn't look like it would be over a hundred thousand square feet. Like the current one is, it looks similar to the Orem temple, which is more like 70, 80,000 square feet. And like all the temples going up in Utah, save um, Ephraim, which is kind of a special case temple. So, um, so it's not really for efficiency. Could be for aesthetics. I think it's for earthquakes or the cynical part of me wants to think it's because the church is tired of, of, um, engaged couples not really wanting to get married in Provo because, because they don't want it in the backdrop of their of their of their uh, wedding pictures. Yeah, like nobody wants that as a picture. So I mean, people still get married in Provo, obviously. But I it's mean, sort of yeah. Anecdotally, though, it's famous that a lot of people in the area would go to Mount Tipinogos or yeah, no, nowadays that for a long go to Provo this... City Center nowadays. I would imagine that's way more photogenic, right? So, oh, I so. love Provo City Center. Um. I, I I used to go to state conference in the Provo Tabernacle, so yeah, I have a, a, a affinity for that building. But uh, yeah, there was a point where the like the the highest there was a statistic that somebody gave me once where like the mo- the highest number of of live ceilings in like the whole church were, was done at Timpanogos, and it was because mm-hmm. you had all these people at BYU getting engaged and getting married. And then, you know, driving 20 minutes north so that they could have a prettier temple in their background. Anyway. That's um, funny. One other thing uh, that you didn't mention, and somebody, I can't remember if you or Joseph or somebody brought this up on the on the Facebook post as well. It, it's it, This is totally speculative, but there could it could be that they're also putting in a second baptistry. And that could improve as, you know, capacity, efficiency, Especially at BYU. Especially BYU at BYU, too. because you have a lot of endowed people, obviously, at BYU, you know, with, especially with richer divisionaries and people get married. Uh, but you also have a lot of unendowed people. There's, especially among the sisters, if they chose not to go on a mission, it's becoming more common for sisters just to choose to get uh, endowed without having done missionary work. But there still is a significant number of freshmen, especially who go to the temple specifically for baptisms. So it makes sense to put in a second baptistry there and and be able to kind of 
accommodate a higher capacity in that way. And that on top of the fact that it's just a growing trend in Utah anyway. We know the Salt Lake Temple is going to have two. The Syracuse Temple is going to have two. It seems to be a thing. Yeah. Even right. yeah. I think it's good. All right. Real quick. One other quick one here for you. Um, American Samoa. This is this is Temple News. So American Samoa, not Samoa, the country, I guess, which was formerly Western Samoa, right? So there's Samoa, the country. There's American Samoa. We've split the Samoans. They're a, a two-state people. Um, they have issued, the legislature there has issued a, a commendation to the church, specifically on the groundbreaking of the new Pago Pago American Samoa Temple. I just think this is uh, just a lot of fun in the fact that they've just said like, I don't know, how often do we get commendations from political bodies or from governmental bodies when we are breaking grounds on temples and anywhere, no matter how like normalized we are as Latter-day Saints as part of the social fabric. I mean, for goodness sake, when they built a temple in Newport Beach, it was like a battle just to get the thing built in the city in the first place, right. let alone a commendation from the the state government, the equivalent of something like that. So. They had a little joint session there. Elder Brett K. Naturis spoke to the joint session, and they got to receive this this wonderful commendation. Can you imagine, like the, the Orange County commissioners being like, "We need to, we need to commend the church yeah. for." Uh, well, I guess the, the, the Orbelinda Temple is a new opportunity. I guess we should start lobbying them for the. Co- we should start lobbying them and the state senate of California. Yeah, it's for like, a hey, you guys really don't want to be put, you know, behind American Samoa here, like on this trend. You need to give us commendation. It's actually, here. not a bad idea. This is going to be my work now. I am going to pester the legislature in. Uh, <laughs> Jeff I know, has had a new. I, I know lobbyists in Sacramento. They don't work in our area, but I could. We can see what happens, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, this is something we don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time on, but it was really interesting. And you brought this to my attention, Jeff. This was an article in The Atlantic, and it was written by an Episcopalian minister, mm-hmm. uh, a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Felicetti. Felicetti, I'm, I'm assuming it's the like Italian pronunciation. That you really got to pronounce it, yeah. Felicetti. Um, but so it's interesting that the headline is, My Church Doesn't Know What to Do Anymore. And it was a really good article uh, for me to read because it was written from a different perspective. And I always enjoy uh, kind of getting a little window into the way other people think, you know, other co-religionists, as Joseph Smith might say. Um, And so she's describing her experience as an Episcopalian minister, but it was still very relatable because basically the gist of the article was that she... Uh, you know, had very straightforward guidelines when it came to the beginning of COVID. Like, we can't meet in person, and here's how we do the sacrament, and here's how we do this, and here's how we do that. And then eventually, as things, you know, got better, or things, people start to get uh, vaccinated, and numbers start to, started to get a little better uh, in, you know, the beginning of this last year, um, they, the, the, direction that she got from her diocese, which would be kind of like, I don't know, our stake or our area yeah, would be maybe a good analogy. Um, was just like, it's kind of up to you. And so it's been very difficult for her to navigate, like, how do we accommodate not only, uh, you know, what we want to have as like, what is the basic parameters of our worship, right? But also accommodate the different needs of the people. Like, for example, there's some people who can't be vaccinated because of their age or people who, in spite of being vaccinated, are still at risk because of their age or health conditions, et cetera. And then also accommodate the wants of people in her congregation. Uh, The people who say, well, we want to sing or we want to do this or we want to do that. Um, Anyway, she's like, it's a hard needle to thread and then the other thing she's noting is that it's hard to maintain numbers because no matter what she does, 
not not everybody is pleased. And so if she, you know, has stricter requirements for masks, then people are going to take off and go to a different Episcopalian congregation that's not as strict. If she goes less strict on those things, then the people who want masks or whatever are also going to take off and find a, another a different congregation that meets their needs. So it's just, it was good to like, I mean, it wasn't good. The article to me was actually very sad because it was sort of a plea for help and a, and a sort of a throwing up her hands and saying, I really don't know what to do with this. But I really related, especially where I am in the country, um, where I don't always feel like the stake guidance or the ward guidance where I live uh, meets what I would expect the church to be like, you know, as far you know, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing pandemic situation, uh, especially since I, I, as we noted before, I, I serve in, not in, I'm not really in the bishopric, but I'm still a part of the leadership organization. And so it's, anyway, I, I really felt for her. I thought I was really grateful for her for writing this article in, into the Atlantic for, for publishing it. And I think it's something we can all relate to regardless of where you fall uh, on what you think is appropriate measures, because that's really her point. It's like, who knows what, I, I can't tell you what the appropriate measures are. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Anyway, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, 2021 has been a weird, much more of a limbo year in that sense, right? I mean, it, yeah, like that's the, it, it just, it struck home so well. It was almost, it was in that in that sense easier through so much of 2020 when the option to attend wasn't there and just to soldier on and power through with my family and do our church at home and say, this is what we're doing right now and hands are tied, right? But uh, yeah, it makes it a lot harder depending on how, who's letting who call shots and do what they want to do, right? And yeah, of course, we all have our own opinions on on how things should be. Um, the one thing I have seen in all of this, and this is sort of related, is I feel like the, the broader tenor, at least in our faith, seems to be, and this might be elsewhere too, it seems to be like um, if people, if say they have no masks, at least where I, which is still a thing, like we're still masking up at church here. And sit, let's say they say, all right, no more masks. And if the people aren't comfortable with that, like they want to wear masks, you know, they can, that's their choice to stay home. I hear that language a lot. Like, well, you know, they're making their choice not to be here. But what I never hear is the flip side of it of saying like, no, we're wearing masks. And if people have a problem with that, then they are choosing to, not to be here. I never hear that argument. It's always the p- folks who want to wear masks and are concerned about not wearing them are somehow the ones who are um, basically it's like, we're, we're extending this opportunity to you and you are not taking it, but we're never flipping it around and talking about it the other way. I've never seen that anyway. And that's purely anecdotal, of course. No, I I, I mean, I I will be a second witness to that where the, when I've heard the concerns brought up in, in meetings, whether it's ward council or whatever, generally the concern is let's make sure the people who don't want to wear a mask feel welcome here. And it's never, let's make sure the people who are concerned and, and want masks to be worn, that they feel comfortable here. And it's sort of, and it's sort of that idea that like, well, if they don't, if they feel that they're at risk, or whatever, they'll stay home. We continue to broadcast sacrament meeting. But then the other thing that I hear sometimes is then, uh, you know, it's sort of not necessarily as part of the same conversation, but then it'll come up later or in a different context that people like in leadership will start saying, well, you know, this family is staying home and it makes sense because they just had, you know, the husband just had heart surgery or whatever. And they'll say, but this family's staying home. And really, there's no real good reason for them to be avoid. You know, that people start to make their own judgment calls about like, well, who actually ought to be concerned and who actually deserves to stay home yeah. and have the sacrament in their home and watch the broadcast rather than coming in in person. And it's like, Hey, you know, I, I don't think it's our place to be able to make that judgment call 
because everybody knows their own health and their own mind in a way that like, I don't know, it's not up to me to say like, no, no, really, you should be in church because I think your health is just fine, you know? Yeah. I just think a lot of those, it's, we've had that, that mindset's been there forever, right? I mean, people choose whether or not to come to church and some Mm -hmm. people have had health issues long before COVID and they couldn't come to church and we'd reach out to them. But I just think like that, that old playbook doesn't, just doesn't work in the pandemic. We can't approach it that same way. And we have to be more sensitive to every one's needs in that sense. Those other thoughts I always have, like, I wonder if the fact that there's been so much politicization around mask wearing and the fact that the church largely skews conservative, if those inherent biases around that sort of thing that inform how we're acting in terms of what I'm saying that, you know, oh, definitely, the, you know, yeah. it's just, that, I mean, hundred percent, Jeff, I, I, I think you're right on you're hitting part, at, at least in part, that's, that's right. That's the nail being hit on the head with that. Yeah, so. And so it's like, yeah, it's going to be fun. Like right now we're going to have, we're going to have a word Christmas party, which might not sound like a big deal to people. And they're, they're authorizing us to do it. But at the same time, like, it's just going to be like in the cultural hall, everyone just unmasked sitting by each other and eating. I don't know if that's my jam right now. I want it to be my jam. I like socializing with my ward at the same time. It's like, well, yeah, I don't know if this is our, but in your report. where you are. And I don't know, I haven't looked at the specific numbers for your County, but I'm guessing it's probably like 70 to 80% of eligible people have been vaccinated where you are. We're, we're doing pretty well in Northern Virginia, better than the rest of the state as well. But Virginia overall does. Yeah. It does. Okay. But I think a lot of that has been because of like enforcement, quite frankly. But here where I am, at least in, in the County where I reside, it's, it's closer to 40, between 40 and 50% of eligible people have been vaccinated. And so I would feel more comfortable eating dinner in a cultural hall in your ward <laughs> That I wouldn't mind I know. because it's like, well, you know, we're all taking our masks off to eat, but um, at least we're all, you know, we're all vaccinated. But and, yeah. and it's for that reason, it doesn't freak me out like as much. And especially out here, like so many federal employees now have been required to do so, right. all the you know lawsuits notwithstanding and things. So, yeah, no, that um, actually I think improved numbers quite a bit around here because uh, in, in Bingham County, where I am, but especially in Bonneville County, so many got- people work at the Idaho National Laboratory, which is a nuclear research reactor just a little west of here. And all of those people have been required to be vaccinated. So like that, that did give us a boost, but you still like when I, I was looking up CDC numbers uh, in the last week and I shouldn't because it always just depresses me. But Bonneville, <laughs> Bonneville County where Idaho Falls is, is actually starting to look pretty good. Like where, where you would want it, where, where, where a lot of the rest of the country was like five months ago. Uh, but yeah, Bingham County still isn't so hot. So yeah. Or a little too hot. Maybe is another way. Hey-o. of looking at it. There we go. Anyway, we digress. The point is, it is hard to manage a congregation in all of this now because it's less clear cut, and I, I don't envy the people. Yeah, it's I mean, easy I, for I work... me and my wife to make decisions for ourselves and our family, but yeah, how do you do that for a congregation of families? So, how do you do for yeah. family, and how do you balance the, the literal needs of not denying people, you know, their rights to the equivalent of communion based on those health choices and things yep. like that? Like, you know, it's hard. So, uh, great article out of the Deseret News here. I think Trent Toon, um, but I think his name is Tuena like too well as Trent Tuena has written a great profile and in an interview with David Archuleta. You might remember some months ago, David Archuleta, famous singer, Latter-day Saint, very active in our faith community, um, came out saying he didn't like out and out say I am gay, but he basically said like, I have dealt with same sex attraction, but he goes more in depth about this. And this is uh, credit to, to Trent for the article credit to David Archuleta for being just really open and forthright about his experience with, with all of this. Cause he has his, his every goal is to remain part of the church and be active in it. Um, and of course it raises, it opens up some of those typical questions when he says like, you know, it's not much different than with girls. Like I go out with guys and it's like, 
going out with girls, but it's gets into that hole in the weeds, but like, okay, but like, can you actually have a relationship? Can you hold hands? Can you make out with another boy if you want to, or how does that kind of stuff work? But, um, regardless, I, I just want to commend everyone involved in this for going in depth on, uh, on his own experience. And I'm really like the experiences David Archuleta had. I mean, he spoke, he spoke about how on his mission, I think he kind of went on his mission, hoping some of his, his same sex attraction would subside because of his giving himself over to the Lord. He hoped he would be blessed with that. And he talks about how 18 months in, he was still like, this is still here. And he finally told his mission president and the mission president reacted exactly how you need to react in these situations. Not by saying, well, let's continue to have faith. We can get rid of that. Here's some tactics. Have you tried this? He just told him like, well, I love you. You're doing great work out here. The Lord loves you. Keep working hard. And just, you know, keep being a great missionary. That's what you're here to do. Well, and I love the, you know, the, the quotation in the article where he, you know, where he's telling the story. It was, it was almost as if that his mission president was like commending him. He said something like, well, this is one of the biggest days of your life. And I think yeah. what he meant was you felt enough love and trust between us that you were able to come out to me, your mission president. And it, and it was sort of like he was commending him, like, thank you for being honest. And I'm glad that you can be honest with yourself and now with others. And yeah, sort of like a just keep doing what you're doing. You're an awesome missionary kind of a message. And yeah, totally commendable. What a, what a great way to respond from a mission president's perspective. Yeah. And all this, I mean, this is like a long form article. You should all definitely give it a read. Um, and he says like his quote, like, I feel like I don't have anything to hide. I don't have to hide that I'm attracted to guys and I don't have to hide that I still love God. And I trust in him as he leads me in this territory. I never imagined I would be in. He says, it's nice to know that I don't have to let him go because the negative thoughts and voices in your head say you have to. I feel like it's maybe the closest I've ever been with him, which is great. So check this article out. We'll have it linked at the website at thisweekinmormons.com with this episode. You can read it up. Good, Definitely a good read. Definitely. Um, let's do one other uh, kind of sort of of interest article. And then I think we can do like a good like rapid fire, like holiday t- style article. There are, but, yeah, yeah, we got some of those. But sure. uh, just something worth checking out, religionnews.com, uh, which is Jana Reese's, or yeah, Jana Reese's um, website. That's that right, she... Jana Reese. Jana Reese. Jana Reese. I didn't realize we had a Jana Reese musical cue. I mostly use it when Josie's on and she does her international news roundup. Uh, to- <laughs> That's amazing. But here we are. Um, So we don't have to spend, you know, we don't have to dwell on this because, I mean, there's a lot to unpack and I don't think we have time to like delve into it. But um, she uh, refers to a recent study in 2020 uh, about U.S. Mormons or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, And the, the whole, the kind of the big conclusion is religiosity has declined over time. Uh, mm-hmm. what that means isn't necessarily that like fewer people are identifying as Latter-day Saint. It's more that among people who do identify as Latter-day Saint, fewer people are saying that religion is very important in their life. And it's just interesting. So like generally we would assume that if somebody identifies as Latter-day Saint, they're going to church or they have some sort of affinity for the church. Cause a lot of people, whether or not they've removed their, their names from the records of the church generally if if you don't identify as as LDS you don't you don't, you'd say no I'm not a Mormon even if you are still a member so people who identify as LDS saying that uh, a few of them are saying religion is very important and so she she goes I we just you know this is on the Facebook page this is on the all on the social medias that uh, <laughs> Twim does read the article yourself it's very interesting it's hard to know what to do with this data 
Uh, and they're also uh, the other depression. thing that she points out. Just be depressed. Yeah. Well, the other thing she points out is that uh, for the first time in in you know our generation's memory, the church has not um, released certain numbers. And let's see. Uh, Da, da, da. So it's not just that, you know, so the church always gives statistics, especially around general conference, right? There's like sort of a world report, right? In between sessions and they often talk about numbers and they publish those numbers online. Um, the, so we, we have data um, about how many members there are, but the church has stopped providing like specifics. Normally is from the article. Normally the church releases global membership number during the April general conference and follows up with the country by country information less than a week later this year, it did the first, the global numbers overall, but not the second. And so it raises the question of why is the church, why did, what is the reason to, to not provide country by country numbers that, in that breakdown? And, you know, there's all sorts of speculation and we don't need to necessarily get into it, but it does make you think, well, I mean, if some of those numbers have gone down then why, I mean, not releasing the numbers to me kind of makes you say, makes you assume, oh, numbers have gone down. And if they have gone down, release them anyway. And then, then we have a conversation about it, right? I mean, and, or we say, okay, when we see that this like, membership has declined in this country or, or hasn't, hasn't been rising in this country as fast as it normally does. Let's have a conversation. What do we do about that? Why is that important? Why is this happening, et cetera? All right. So from the marketing perspective, though, here's why. I agree with you. I would love to see them because it just looks suspicious. But if you release the numbers and it does show a net loss of membership, at least in the US, because the, the net gain in 2020, which they did do its global numbers, was only like 98,000 members. Obviously, you could have a giant fat COVID asterisk next to all of this if you have any losses. But I'm going to assume that, that 98, a big chunk of the 98,000 came from like the Philippines, Latin America, Africa, and there's a very strong chance in the de- a lot of the developed world there was a decline in numbers, um, and an actual decline, not just stagnant growth, but like resignations or deaths might have outpaced um, actual convert baptisms, which can right. happen. I'm with you. Great. Here's what happened. It was a bad year, of course, because of COVID. We talk about it. We make it through. But if the church does release that, the headline immediately becomes Mormon Church experiences net loss in membership for first time in history. And then that becomes the story, and by not a, by not releasing anything about it, there is no story beyond Jana Reese's blog. I was going to say that's true. The only the only it's person no. reporting on not releasing the number is Jana Reese. No one no one else is. So, yeah. And like I, I like as, as someone who enjoys the research side of it, it bugs me too. But abs- this would get it would get picked up by outlets. It would become a much bigger tale, and so maybe they're just not going to. The question is though, does this mean they'll just stop doing it altogether? So twenty twenty doesn't just win. Isn't just this random blip where they don't release the numbers and they will other years because then that also looks suspicious i don't know so but that's why that's um, absolutely why i would create a new cycle around a negative story about the church yep but it is interesting and it's cool i mean yeah we're we're slowing we have been slowing down in the u.s for some time i don't know if a lot of everyday members kind of like really pick up on this, <laughs> especially you look at somewhere like Utah where temples are going up gangbusters and, and temples have also kind of stopped being a direct indication of growth and strength of church membership. Many of the temples announced in recent conferences have been for areas with one stake with basically stagnant membership numbers. So that'll, that, that old rule is kind of out the window. So that's fine. But um, I think when you get out of places like the Intermountain West, you can forget that, oh yeah, it's, we're kind of just here. 
And maybe we're getting settled in as a faith as far as U.S. culture goes, and we're experiencing what a lot of other faiths have experienced before us. Uh, and we don't figure out how to combat that, though. That's the big thing and what we could do about it. So I don't know. I don't know. All right. Christmas blasts. Christmas blast. All right. One you don't have a musical so, cue for Christmas blast? Come on, Jeff. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. It's right here. So everyone, there will be an animated nativity projected on the <laughs> ceiling of the tabernacle. All right. That's enough. That's um, enough. It's dramatic piano. It's great. Okay. So this is actually very cool. We know the uh, the offerings at Temple Square are cut back quite a bit this year, even though it's reopened. Last year, pandemic happened. Nothing happened. This year, three quarters of Temple Square is under construction, along with uh, the plot, whatever we call next door, the church plaza, whatever's between the COB and the, the CAB, you know, that's all under construction. But a cool thing we get in all of this is a projection of the nativity, animated projection of it on the ceiling of the tabernacle, which I think is just fun. I'm assuming the tabernacle is just going to kind of be open. And like it is, and you can walk in there and this will be going up with some, some shadow graphics to tell the story we find in Luke two. Yeah. The picture, looks cool, cool. that they put yeah. in the article. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of that. Well, it's not the same animation, but I think about the cool animation they did in Deathly Hallows part one, you know, the story of the elder yeah. one. That was cool animation. The, but story, I, the, the tale of the three brothers or whatever. Yeah. I think this is great. And they're also going to show viewings of the Christ child, that really great uh, film that came out a couple of years ago. That'll be every 30 minutes in the conference center, for example. This is great. I love the stuff that's a little more out of the box. And I wish I could go to Utah and actually go inside the tabernacle and see this cool new medium projected on the ceiling of a historic structure in our faith. And I love putting the two together to make something neat. So I well, think that's rad. It's very clever because, you know, I, I you know, almost, especially since uh, we've moved here, you know, we, we often go to Utah for Christmas. And, and when we're staying with my sister's family, one of the things we almost always do is go watch and see the lights in Temple Square. And then also as part of that, you, you go into the North Visitor Center, you sit down and you watch like a nativity, like, you know, a Christmas video, yeah. and you can't do any of that. Like the North Visitor Center is gone. Like they've demolished it. And, you know, there's so much is under construction that there's, there's aside from the conference center, there's not really a place to sit down and watch a movie or, you know, you know, the North Visitor Center was great because it had all these little rooms. And so people could go and choose what they wanted to watch, yeah. spend, you know, be in a little intimate setting with their family and hear the missionaries bear their testimony. So, you know, since that's gone, it's a really clever way to adapt the space in the tabernacle to kind of make up for a little bit of that loss. And I, yeah, I think it's a really great idea. And I'm hoping that uh, when we're down in Utah in a few weeks that we'll, you know, we'll still be able to make it to Temple Square and, and maybe see this. And I can let you know how it looks. Right. I'm hoping you it's cool. It, you, you put it up on the, the twin TikTok. I'll, I'll do some pirate video of it, you know. I don't think I'll have to pirate. I think you're literally, I think they're going to encourage the social media. Oh, okay. sure that's going to, they're going to have signs up to say hashtag light the world. I'm pretty sure it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Hashtag light the ceiling. Yeah. With love. Light with it with love. love. Uh, another, I, I really liked this story. Uh, this was from the church news. The, they mobilized to the MTC over Thanksgiving and put 700 missionaries to work. With, and they, the, the church partnered with a, a group, uh, a nonprofit called Hunger Fight, and they brought all of this food like to the MTC and had 700 missionaries in, in just four hours put together around 385,000 breakfast kits for distribution to families in need. And I think that's amazing. Like, and the article is really good and it's great. And you get to hear, read some uh, quotes from Sharon Eubank and things like that, which are 
We always need more Sharon Eubank. <laughs> um, is it Sharon? It's Sister Eubank. Yeah, Sharon Eubank. Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, good. Uh, anyway, really good, short, inspirational article, fun pictures of missionaries just, you know, getting down and doing some really that's, important service. That's a lot. That's like, if you said it was 385,700 missionaries, I mean, that's about 550 kits per missionary. Yeah. Which is a lot. I mean, if you divide that, that's 137 or 38 per hour that you're that you're rocking out. Well, I mean, they, they so one of the quotes from the article was that they they that it was sort of a controlled chaos, which I can imagine, you know. That like, is two point oh, three kits per minute. Which is fantastic. And just imagine the impact stretch. that three hundred eighty five thousand breakfast kits will have on families who need such things. I, I, anyway, it's really inspirational. It's a great holiday story. Um, it's a great way, I think, to use the missionaries of the MTC. And I would propose, if I may, and again, I'm not in charge and I don't want to be, but I'm going to put this out there. Why not do this once a month? It's not like it doesn't have to just be a Thanksgiving thing that we partner with an organization like Hunger Fight and put 700 missionaries to work. Like maybe once a month, you know, so, you know, because generally, you know, if you're going English speaking, what is what, three and a half, four weeks in the MTC? Um, two to three usually, yeah, something like that. Oh yeah, no, not even yeah. So yeah, just a few weeks. So yeah, I mean, at least once a month, let's do one of these service projects. Feed the world. The answer is because we do not stand for the hymns of Zion unless directed to do so. That That's has nothing to do with this. No, but it's the thing I remember like the most from the MTC. All things. Yeah. Yes. It always seems so cantankerous. No, no, I just think it would be great. It's a great way to mobilize the missionary force. It's a good way to do good in the world. And uh, I would love to see more of this. And let's do it at Thanksgiving. Let's do it at Christmas. Let's do it on Martin Luther King Day. Yeah, let's, let's do it on like the not the holidays when people don't expect giving. That's that's yeah. when we really need Happy to Happy President's up. Day. Here's a bunch of breakfast kits. Well, I mean, like, really, we should. I I love the Christmas spirit, but we could we could do it all the time. And I'm that's I'm guilty, like anybody else. But that's a. Uh, Good thing we could do. Also, for Christmas time, the First Presidency has its Christmas message up, which we'll link to, and you can read pretty str- just three paragraphs. It's very short and uh, sweet. Yeah. Very short and sweet. Also, a good reminder, though, we will have the First Presidency Christmas devotional uh, coming up here, I believe, this weekend. It's always the first weekend in December, and it's going to be here on Sunday, December 5th at 6 p.m. Mountain time. It'll Is it still Christmas. the First Presidency devotional? I, I stopped. I thought they stopped calling it that because it's not just speakers from the First Presidency anymore. They did stop. I think we wrote an article about this years ago. They stopped calling it that at one point. And then I remember the devotional felt kind of weird because we had like random 70s giving. I don't know. Like to me, it felt like, no, I tuned into this because I literally want to see these three cozy men be cozy and Christmassy with me. And that's what I'm into. Um, but that's, it's called that again. So whoever may speak, oh, yeah. that's what it's called. And they'll still have some... Messages from church leaders, music by the Tabernacle Choir, all that stuff. Obviously, it will not be available to the public, even though I believe it'll be broadcast from the venue. Uh, but you can only tune in to watch it on the interwebs or you know wherever you get your stuff. But I look forward to it. It's a wonderful time. You get to hear terrific music, great messages of hope. And they usually, assuming they go with the norm, they usually decorate the conference center and so it's quite beautiful and lustrous for Christmas, which is great. Yeah, it's always great. It's always inspirational. I love it. Uh, and then just to wrap up our holiday blast, uh, we would like to point your perspective to um, to a very important and poorly written, terrible article. <laughs> Sorry. There's an opinion this piece, is, I guess. We have it's, no biases, folks. We're right in the middle at the top on that chart. Well, since media. this is an opinion piece in the, in the Desert News, I feel like I'm allowed to express my opinion. The title of this 
opinion piece is the socialist at the dinner table. And it's this woman, uh, Jennifer Graham, who is complaining about her sister being, or not her sister, her daughter being indoctrinated with not only herself being indoctrinated with anti-capitalist ideas, but then also trying to indoctrinate the rest of the family. <gasps> that That's she what gave, happens. They, she gave they... gifts of the communist manifesto to every member of the family. And it was funny when I read stuff like this, I'm just like, did this really happen? It's you like, you know, admit, that's, though, if you received the communist manifesto as a Christmas present, you'd be like, thank you. I mean, it's kind of the equivalent <laughs> of getting coal in your stocking, right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate the thought. It's like, oh boy. Are you telling me I like I shouldn't buy that television? What do you what exactly is the message you're trying to send to me? You know, I, you know, when I'm when it's Christmas time, I like to snuggle up with a good, you know, book by Charles Dickens or Ray Bradbury because he's one of my favorites or Karl Marx, you know, who doesn't like a little cozy Karl Marx reading? You know, over the holidays. So anyway, like it's just funny because it's like it's one of those things where sometimes when I was reading it, I thought this is like those like, you know, social media posts that end with and then everybody stood up and clapped and you're like, no, no, that didn't happen. Like, And I'm not calling Ms. Graham a liar. I'm sure this happened. But it's just funny because she just takes this thing in a, in a weird direction and it's kind of all over the place. And she had in the end, the conclusion is that she told her uh, her daughters that she will read every word of the Communist Manifesto. She said she'll read it twice if they will read Milton Friedman, Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. Anyway, it, what, one of the things that I thought was funny about this article is that one of her, of her like sort of central ideas is that like, okay, okay, I'm worried right now because I feel like my daughter has been indoctrinated and she's trying to indoctrinate my other children. But I remember when I was rebellious and I thought I knew better than my parents and I, and I always, and I came around and that's what children do. They'll, they'll just come around. And I'm just like, do you not know how like generational change works? Like we, you know, the baby boomers did throw off <laughs> a lot of the ideas of the greatest generation and Gen Xers threw off the ideas of the baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z are throwing off the, you know, the ideas of their parents. Like, uh, she's just assuming this is all going to just resolve itself because her daughter's going to come to her senses and just understand the, the true gospel of capitalism and how it saves the world and makes everything better without any Ill side effects. Um, uh, gosh, now I sound like a Marxist. I'm so sorry. I got too. I think, I think Jeff. for the record, you should. Say, I think you and I are both capitalists, though, Jared. We should. I, I don't know. I mean, I, and okay. that's the thing. Like to me, what one? That's the other one of the other funny things about this article is that she just assumes boxes, right? And yeah. like, you know, and it's just like you're either a capitalist or you're a socialist, and there's no crossover. There's no subtlety. There's no you know. There's no people who think well, maybe you could have capitalism, a free market that's somewhat regulated to prevent this, and and also some social net pro you know safety net programs for people. Like no, you're either a capitalist or a socialist. And so like we don't yeah. want Venezuela in this country. We don't want that. I, I mean, I'm like you. I I I enjoy working for money and spending that money. Like <laughs> capitalism works fine for me. Shopping is fun. Buying new things. Or saving up for a good purchase, like whatever. But at the same time, it's like, does that mean I'm a 100% free market, Coke Brothers style, you know, capitalist? I, I don't know. I think there is room for nuance, and that nuance is not present in this article. So, true story. When I lived in Edinburgh, every morning, I'd walk, I'd walk down the Royal Mile, and I would kneel down before the statue of Adam Smith. <laughs> And worship, and then you felt an invisible hand, like stroke an invisible your hand hair. would lift would lift me up and tell me I was going to have a great day. It was great. <laughs> it, it would actually give me a good game. 
That's a good game on the Twitch. <laughs> the invisible hand of Adam Smith has been accused of sexual impropriety with Jeff as but, he, when but, he was no, a student I, at Edinburgh. I, I was okay with it. I, I gave consent. <laughs> okay. It was fine. He did, and it just set me in a great path for my day to study nationalism. It was dynamite. Um, did you want to get into that other article about uh, yeah, let's let's let, let's at least point. I think the point the listeners towards it. Uh, really interesting article in the Trib. Uh, a lot of our listeners might be angry that we ended with the trib, but uh, here we go. <laughs> if you start with the trib, it's okay, but never end with the trib. Yeah. So Tamara Kemsley wrote a great article, uh, the headline being, Email after schoolgirl suicide reflects LDS leaders' increased willingness to confront racism. So if you don't know, did I don't know if this was addressed in depth. Uh, we, I, we did talk, last time I was on the show, we talked about the FBI's investigation into uh, racism Davis in Davis County, Utah. Uh, so another thing that happened shortly after that study was released and some of the it was starting to be analyzed, uh, it was reported that a a young woman who was is black and also autistic and lived in Davis County, she was ten years old and she committed suicide. She died by suicide, um, and the and all signs point to the, the it being a result of bullying both bullying because of her autism and also bullying because of the color of her skin. And again, and this happened in Davis County where the FBI has been investigating, you know, like endemic racism. So, uh, so the, so what it seems to happen, it it was, the article just acknowledges that, you know, the, the, though the church's email didn't specifically say this was in response to that, the email came out uh, very quickly after that suicide occurred, the tragic loss of life of this 10-year-old girl. And basically, uh, the the email from the church was um, encouraging people, encouraging members of the church to be inclusive, not just accepting. Essentially, they're kind of like, let's step it up. Like, it's one thing to be like accepting and say, oh, yeah, all are alike unto God, like the scripture says. But let's not just acknowledge the, you know, uh, acceptance of all people. Let's actually actively being inclusive. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some paraphrasing here, but it's, it's a very good article. We get quotes from a couple of really interesting uh, uh, perspectives. One of them is a woman named Kimberly Applewhite Teeter. She's a Black Latter-day Saint. She is a psychologist, works in Salt Lake City. She has some really good perspectives on race and the church and how the church is you know, responding to racism and trying to encourage better better behavior and better mindsets in our in our members. The other really interesting person who's quoted extensively in the article is, uh, I don't know if it's Janan or Janan Graham Russell. I, I know who she is. I follow her on Twitter, but I've never heard her name pronounced out loud. She is a Mormon studies fellow at the University of Utah, and she is a PhD candidate working in, uh, towards a PhD in, in Mormon studies and, and history of the church. Anyway, it's it's a great article, I think, and it goes through some of the other things that uh, the church has done in recent history. Uh, President Nelson, a year ago in general conference, talking about racism very explicitly in one of his talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dallin H. Oaks at uh, BYU Devotional actually putting up a banner underneath him, his image as he gave his talk, as he gave and saying "Black Lives Matter." Um, so anyway, it's it's really good. I, I really think all members should read this. And part of the reason for that is, you know, this this email that's being the sort of the subject of this article went out in just under the you know inspiration and news email that kind of just goes out to all members of the church who have a a, a church account with an email address. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but I often ignore those emails. 
I don't, I mean, they, you know, they come out pretty often and I don't yeah. always see them. And even if I do see them, I don't always click through. And so important messages like this sometimes unfortunately get overlooked. And so I think this article is really good because it draws attention to it. And it also deepens the discussion about like what the church is trying to do and how important it is for all of us, for all of us. I mean, not just to point fingers at Davis County or anyone else, but to look inward and say, how am I a part of the solution or how am I a part of the problem and how, what am I doing to not just make sure I'm not racist or that I'm being inclusive, but that how do I make sure that my ward is being inclusive, that my stake is being inclusive, that we're making changes together as a whole, as a body Mm -hmm. to make Zion truly a place where all are welcome and all are being blessed and all are included. Anyway, good article, really good article. I highly recommend it. Good thoughtful stuff. Well, folks, I think we'll leave it there. I, I would love to talk. There is a great, okay, I'll just, I'll link to it on the website. There's an article in the Desert News that is not LDS direct, but it does have, um, it pertains to like the family proclamation and things like that. But it's interesting because it's from Deseret News and it's profiling breadwinner moms and, how, and essentially arguing on their behalf. Uh, the comments are, I wouldn't say the comments are disheartening. There's a, an interesting mix of comments on the Deseret News website. About this, some saying like, "Look, we know it's a woman's role to do, you know, to nurture kids." I think it's just we're all in different places, and you know, we gotta just think about what works best for all of us. But there's a lot of cool data in it. Check it out. Again, it doesn't explicitly go into the Latter Day Saint side of it, but you can obviously see how it pertains to our faith community and everything. So it's a it's worth checking it out. I'm thankful for breadwinner moms. My mom was one of them. My parents got divorced. And because of my breadwinner mom, our, our quality of life actually improved. My mom went to college and had a career before she had kids. My dad did not. And so um, she was able to get back to work where she was and have like a perfectly fine paying job and salary and take care of all of us. So I'm that was our circumstance. Obviously, it wasn't like a married couple making choices in that sense. But well, you know, doesn't the family proclamation say individual circumstances yeah, require you to? Yeah. Of course they do. And that's the most important thing for us to remember. Like, I, I think the hardest thing, though, is that data can show outside of any any religious persuasion that it's becoming increasingly difficult for um, single income homes with kids to make ends meet in the United States because of how much more expensive it's gotten. A lot of people in many situations both spouses work out of necessity. And sometimes it really is necessity. You could argue like, is it a necessity to have this house and these cars? And that? Maybe not. Sure. That's fine. Maybe you're trying to support a lifestyle you don't need to have. That's a, that's fine. But in many cases, it's a necessity in our day and age to do that so you can afford to send your kids to college and afford to give them all those things. Not always, of course, every circumstance is different, but that's one of the big things that's kind of changed. I think we still try to have this, uh, this Eisenhowerian view of the United States where, you know, dad can go, dad, Father comes home. Dinner is ready on the table with his lovely wife, Darlene. Hello, Max. How are things? You know, and just like these old these old PSAs. And sometimes I think as Latter Day Saints, we're we're sort of in that era, or we think that's what we should always be aspiring to. But anyway, interesting article nonetheless. Just check it out. I thought it was worth a read. I didn't mean to opine too much on it. So, um, other than that, Jared, unless you had any comments on breadwinning moms, but I, think I, I had read the article. It, it came out. It was posted to my feed just right before we started uh, our, no. our, 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 yeah. our recording sessions. I didn't get a chance to look at it, but I will. And uh, I am in favor of breadwinning moms. My, I, my mom stayed at home, but Kelsey's mom, because of circumstances in their family, she did go to work and uh, you know was able to provide for the family, but still be a really great mother. Like it's, you know, we, we can fulfill the roles that are expected of us or that we feel like we need to do, but also fulfill other roles. that. And we uh, can also uh, not judge those who 
if there right. are women who, who quote unquote don't need to work professionally, eh, I don't like thinking of that, but they do, then okay, that's their deal. It's yeah, not our like, place to that, And that's the thing there. Like how, how, do, how do you or I know if they need to, right? I mean, it's not for us to not, make that judgment. It's not our thing. Not our thing at all. So anyway, it's been a delightful discussion. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Once again, go to thisweekinmormons.com where you can get links to all the articles discussed on this terrific episode. And we thank you for taking the time to tune in. Uh, we can't make this show without you. So please share it far and wide. Holidays can get busy. It can be hard to listen to the pod, but we hope you'll still take the time to do that and uh, let your friends know about it. Jared, always great to see you, buddy. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Yeah, I love man. it here. If we, if, we don't have you on for, uh, if we don't have you on for some news before the new year hits, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens in 2022. It'll be great. So. Yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and all of that to you. All that good stuff and to you, my friend. Folks, happy December. And uh, we'll talk to you later. This has been This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff. That was Jared. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.